Amela Ana Salinas, and this is the Women in Tech Show, a show where women in tech talk about technology. A team of robots can accomplish tasks that a single robot can't. They can be in charge of dangerous tasks that are difficult for humans to do and help society. Nora Ayanian, assistant professor in the Department of Computer Science at the University of Southern California, explains how robots can work as a team. Nora talked about the components of building a team of robots and gave examples of tasks that they can do, as well as the current challenges in this space. To support the show, you can write a review on iTunes. Thank you. Nora, welcome to the Women in Tech show. Thank you for having me. Your approach to robotics involves studying people and finding characteristics to apply to robots. What do people do that robots can benefit from? So uh, people are very good at coordination. So if you've ever worked in a group with a bunch of other people, what normally happens is, you know, people get together. They have different strengths uh, based on their experiences that they bring to the table. And because of these different strengths, this heterogeneity in the system, uh, humans are really good at kind of tackling large, complicated tasks because they kind of break down the problem and everybody kind of takes something that they're good at. And, you know, they coordinate to actually complete the task. But in robotics, this is not the case. So generally for multi-robot systems, what we do is we have the problem that we're trying to solve, which we, you know, define. And we usually make a lot of assumptions because sometimes the problem can be really difficult to solve if we don't. Um, and then we optimize that solution or we optimize the solution to that problem. And we apply it to all the robots. So all the robots basically have kind of the same control paradigm that's running them. And so if that control paradigm doesn't work because maybe the world doesn't meet the assumptions that you've made, then, you know, all of the robots don't end up working. And so this kind of heterogeneity that is kind of built into or diversity that's built into kind of human uh, groups that actually makes them work better um, can also be beneficial for robots. And when applying this to robots and finding the heterogeneity, does this come from a hardware perspective or software perspective? Like, do the robots all look the same or are you using different robots? So there are some people that work on heterogeneity for, um, for different kinds of robots. We do that as well. Uh, but for the specific project, we're really interested in heterogeneity in their software. Um, so having kind of uh, complementary approaches to solving the problem that work synergistically together in order to accomplish complex tasks. So if you have kind of this one controller that you're you're using to do like environmental monitoring and uh, maybe that controller isn't optimized with a particular wind speed or temperature or uh, or something else, some other variable in the system, then if you have a bunch of different, uh, a bunch of the same robots that operate on different principles, then some of them might be more successful than others and they can learn from others how to, how to adjust their own controllers. Some people are afraid of the idea of robots replacing humans. And your approach is that it's not necessarily bad when humans are being replaced for dangerous tasks. What are examples of tasks that humans do in dangerous environments that could be replaced by robots? So I think that, um, 
you know, it's not only just dangerous tasks, but also tasks that humans don't want to do or things that are too difficult. Uh, so, for example, with dangerous tasks, it could be uh, containing, you know, wildfires. Um, firefighters put their lives at risk, risk all the time. First responders put their lives at risk all the time after earthquakes and other natural disasters to try to rescue people. Um, you know, robots could be used uh, to uh, to search for people. They could be used to help contain and map forest fires. Um, they could be used, for example, you know, when uh, when airplanes go down in the ocean and we don't know where they are, and it's really hard for a team of humans to go out and look for them because they have kind of limited resources and, of course, a limited time that they can actually be out. And so if you use robots to do this, you can kind of have robots that go all over the place, analyze the data, figure out, you know, how to follow the flow, um, do all kinds of things that, um, you know, that, that would actually not only be dangerous, but just difficult for humans to do and kind of be everywhere at once. Mm -hmm. So extending human capabilities, basically. Exactly. And when robots are deployed to these tasks, maintaining communication within the robots can be necessary. What would they be communicating to each other? Uh, so what they could communicate to each other are uh, kind of abstracted maps of what, what the environment is like. Um, so they can communicate kind of their own location and whatever kind of local information they have about the space. We don't want them to communicate too much because that can be costly in terms of energy usage. And of course, they have limited energy on board. Um, and so uh, we want them to communicate kind of the minimal necessary in order to coordinate and effectively complete the task. And the, it, it really depends on the, the, the problem that we're trying to solve. Um, but in the very least, they might share some abstracted model of, of the space or what they're actually seeing so that other robots can actually benefit from that information as well. And most of the time currently, when robots are used for those dangerous tasks or the tasks that humans don't want to do, currently they are largely teleoperated. And analogous to driverless cars, these cars learn by watching how humans drive for thousands of miles. Can a strategy like this be applied to the teleoperated robots where they are learning from how they're being teleoperated? Um, that's a good question. I, you know, I believe that they could. The trouble is that specifically for first, you know, first response kind of scenarios, every situation is going to be very different. Um, and so you're going to have to collect a lot of data on a lot of different kinds of um, of situations in order to effectively uh, learn good policies for the robots to use in these scenarios. Um, and so it might be um, a very difficult learning problem to do that because, you know, with learning, you need a lot of data and you're going to need a lot of very kind of specialized data to do it. Mm -hmm. Or driving, it's still a more defined task where there's, there's a road, there are signs. Yeah, so driving is a, is a much better defined task. Um, and a lot of intersections can be very similar. And on top of that, as more and more cars drive through the same intersections, there's more experiences to pull from. Um, so you can kind of store information about a particular in, uh, intersection and kind of download it to the cars as they, as they go through it. Uh, whereas with the other kinds of tasks that we're talking about, that's not something that, that you can do. Um, the other challenge with learning from kind of teleoperation is that the operator has very limited situational awareness. So if you ever think about, you know, how, you know, okay, so there's, there's somebody that's actually controlling the robot. So it's a little bit easier because a person gets to use their cognition to make these decisions. The difficulty is that um, 
they don't have as much information as they would if they were actually in the space themselves. Um, and so if you've ever thought about kind of a robot moving around a space, think about the robot's perspective um, and the, the sensor suite that it's equipped with. So even if it has cameras, you only see kind of what that camera sees. It's actually, you know, it might be really difficult to get kind of a full sense of what's actually going on uh, with just the sensors that are on board the robot. Um, and so... So having that kind of situational awareness is difficult for an operator, but for a robot, it has you know models that are built on that kind of sensor information, um, and it can respond perhaps more appropriately. Yeah. Or for example, if there's a smell, the robot can detect it, but the human is not there, so they can't. Exactly. Yeah. Let's talk more about robot coordination of a team. What can a team of robots accomplish that an individual robot can't? So there's a lot of different things. There's a lot of different reasons why people look into multi-robot systems. So one of them is that, of course, you can do things faster, right? You have a bunch of robots instead of having, uh, you know, a robot in one spot. So you can sense in a lot of different uh, locations and you can sense that you can also be in a lot of different locations at once. Um, and so that's something that one robot can definitely not do. Um, so being in a lot of locations at once um, is great for things that are kind of moving rapidly. So, um, you know, a forest fire that, is, you know, the, the boundary is changing rapidly. You kind of want to be able to map it all at once because if you wait till you go all the way around, things are going to be different. Um, or for uh, coastal surveillance, um, there are definitely certain tasks where you want to be kind of everywhere at once and you don't want to kind of have to cycle through different locations. Um, on top of that, with multiple robots, you get kind of the benefit of having a little bit more robustness. Whereas if you have one robot that has all the sensors that you want on board and that robot breaks, then you're, you're out of luck. Uh, whereas if you have a bunch of robots that are maybe cheaper, um, that are kind of roaming around and one of them breaks, it's not that big of a deal. And for your thesis title, Coordination of Multi-Robot Teams and Groups in Constrained Environments, Models, Abstractions, and Control Policies, what was the task and the environment that the team of robots had to complete? So in my dissertation, it was kind of a very general approach to modeling different kinds of multi-robot problems um, and how you might actually solve them. How do you develop control policies? The idea wasn't to solve a very specific task. The idea was how do you um, simultaneously uh, model, plan, and execute uh, for a team of robots in a space? Um, so typically, the way that people solve multi-robot uh, problems are first they decide how each of the robots will um, or how the task will be broken down into smaller pieces and which robot will take each of those smaller pieces. Then they figure out a, a plan to actually get the robots uh, to, to those task locations and to actually do those tasks. And then finally, they develop controllers, low-level controllers, to actually have the robots follow those paths. Uh, but in any one of those, you could you know, you could spend a lot of time optimizing a task assignment, but then not be able to find a, a path for the robots to get to those tasks. Um, and you can spend a lot of time optimizing paths to get to those tasks and then realize that you can't come up with a controller that will allow the robots to follow that path. And so if you solve all of these three sub-problems simultaneously, task assignment, path planning, and control, um, you kind of avoid that downside to breaking up the problem into smaller pieces. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's kind of what my thesis was about. Mm -hmm. Do the robots determine what the subtasks are? 
Uh, so no, they don't. Okay. Um, those are um, generally the the types of problems that we solved were kind of navigation problems where you had robots go to certain task locations that were already known, um, not necessarily in advance, but not set by the robots. And what types of robots were you using for this experiment? So we use both uh, ground and aerial vehicles. Oh, okay. And for the aerial ones, what was the the robot like? The size? Are they drones or? Yeah. So they were um, they were quadcopters, about um, I don't know, l- less than a foot in width. Mm-hmm. And I saw a video where these aerial robots are making a shape in the air. Is this part of this project for modeling the task and the subtasks and coordinating? Oh, do you mean the one with the um, the pyramid video? Yeah. So that's work that I, that I did at USC. Um, that's actually very recent work, so not tied to my uh, dissertation. Okay. Um, but it's a very cool demonstration of, of uh, the tight control that we can actually have on the team of robots. So in that task, like you said, the robots form a pyramid. Is this what you tell the robots to do? Or like, do you specifically say the task is to form a pyramid? So in, in that example, the challenge was not necessarily um, solving kind of the, the, the task. The challenge was kind of a, a systems approach of how you actually control 49 UAVs indoors. Um, so it was more along the lines of how do you address communication challenges Um Specifically because, you know, flying 49 indoors means that you have very limited bandwidth to control each of them. And so the solution was kind of to combine onboard state estimation with offboard um, with offboard uh, camera tracking so that uh, so that the robots can um, can kind of compensate for the the low bandwidth um, of, you know, the information that they get from the offboard system. What did you mean by the offboard camera? So we use a um, uh, an offboard uh, motion capture system similar to what they use, for example, in in the movies uh, to create kind of some animated films. Uh, basically, it's a camera system that is uh, kind of surrounds the room um, and it emits infrared light. Uh, and each of the robots has a set of uh, reflective markers on them, and those reflective markers will reflect the infrared light back into the camera. Um, and based on the location of those markers, um, the camera system as a whole can tell you where each of the markers actually are in the 3D space. So it, it kind of triangulates between cameras. And um, and then using that information, that point cloud, we can figure out where each of the robots actually are in the world. Um, and then send that information over radio to the robots. Oh, cool. Okay, so there. it sounds like there's a central component to this. There is a central component to it, yeah. Does there need to be a central component? Well, the particular robots that we used, um, there does. Uh, well, there really aren't very many. It's, it's a very small robot platform. It fits, uh, there are quadcopters that fit into the palm of your hand. Um, and so they're very small. They don't have a lot of, you know, very advanced sensors. Um, there's really not a lot of space for for effective cameras, and so they kind of need a little bit of of help off board. On top of that, they don't have a lot of processing power, and so um, so we can't do a lot of things on board the robots. But it really depends on the platform. 
So even if they, they had more sensors, there could be the, like you said, the processing power limitation or even the battery. The battery. The more things that you put on board, the the less time that they can actually spend in the air. As it is, they spend about five minutes. Oh, wow. Yeah, five minutes of flight time before you need to recharge. Okay. Um, and so imagine trying to recharge 49 robots. <laughs> it takes a long time. <laughs> okay. Um, the charging takes about, I don't know, 45 minutes or so um, for five minutes of flight time. And you mentioned that from the central unit, you transmit a, a radio signal to the robots. Was that correct? Yes. So we use three radios to control the 49 UAVs. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, not to control, but to um, they control themselves, but to send information about their, uh, about their position. Do the robots also send radio signals to each other? Do they communicate with each other? In this case, they don't. Okay. In some of our other research, they do. Is it um, via radio signals also? So on board, they would use Wi-Fi or potentially Bluetooth. Okay. To do that. Yeah. Okay. And for this experiment, as you mentioned before, they are in an enclosed, controlled environment. And earlier you also mentioned when deploying robots to the real world, each situation is unique. And we must be able to automatically generate a control policy. What is a control policy? So a control policy is basically what, um, what enables the robot to make the right decision. Um, so given, you know, given the information about the space that the robot has, what should it actually do next? Um, so what should it do next and how should it do it? So that's, that's a control policy. And how are these policies specified programmatically? How do you go about implementing the control policy? So based on the different sets of, of scenarios that, um, that we expect the robot to encounter, we can set it um, to, make, you know, to make decisions kind of based on the models that we have. A little more specific, for example, is there, what programming language do you use for, for all this portion of? So we use a combination of uh, C, C++, and Python in order to control the robots in my lab right now. What portion is done in the C++ versus the Python? It really depends on the robot and the project a lot. Um, we use ROS to interface with, um, to interface with the robots. Um, and so ROS functions uh, with both C and with, with Python. When these aerial robots are deployed, or in the example of where they're forming a pyramid, how do they avoid colliding with each other? So in the example of the pyramid, um, they each have kind of their own trajectory that they want to follow. Um, and in that case, we don't, uh, we don't bother with the collision avoidance because it's kind of built into the trajectory. Um, oftentimes, uh, so in my previous work, what we've done for collision avoidance is to model the space such that the robots don't, um, they don't go to the places where it would result in collision. Um, and so if you imagine, you know, you have a, a the space of, of two robots and you remove kind of the points that correspond to the two robots being in, in the same location. Um, and so kind of having the robots kind of move around in that kind of joint space. Uh, so it's a, it's a higher dimensional space, uh, but one point in that space determines the position of, of all of the robots. And another thing that I saw is that when you're approaching a problem in robotics, you also 
use a simulated environment first and then deploy it to the real robots? How well does programming, for example, the robot coordination task in a simulation translate to the real world with the environment variables? That's a very good question. Um, so simulation is uh, is good if it's, for example, physics-based simulation. We don't always do physics-based simulation because uh, for a large number of robots, uh, for example, using 49 of them, it would be extremely slow to run a simulation with all of the physics involved. On top of that, especially for UAVs um, and quadcopters specifically, uh, they actually create a downdraft. And that downdraft uh, is very difficult to model. And so it's really difficult to go directly from, you know, from, from pure simulation to, uh, to a 49 robot experiment uh, if you haven't really considered the fact that, you know, that there's going to be all this kind of wind disturbance in the space because of the, the you know, almost 200 rotors that are spinning simultaneously. Um, and so one thing that we've developed in my lab is a kind of mixed reality approach to going from, uh, from pure simulation to pure hardware experimentation. And what this does is it allows you to run robots in the real space and robots in a, in a virtual space and kind of combine them in a, in a virtual world. So you have the real robots with the full uh, tracking information so that you know their six degree of freedom pose. And you have simulated robots running at the same time. Um, but not only can you do real and simulated robots, but you can also do real robots with simulated sensors so that you can kind of slowly step up um, to having robots with real sensors. So for example, one thing that we've done is we've used these crazy flies, which are the the small kind of palm-sized quadrotors that that we've been using for the for the the pyramid demo, um, and we equip them with uh, with virtual cameras so that we can do uh, you know like image recognition or uh, visual tracking of objects uh, in the virtual world. So you have like a virtual camera and you get a virtual image from it. So if you combine the virtual world um, and the physical world. Uh, in, for example, like a 3D game engine, then you can get, you know, you can get simulated images that you can do visual tracking on. Um, and the UAVs that are in the the physical space, the physical UAVs, they are not nearly as steady as the virtual ones, uh, because of course there's all this wind disturbance and other factors that affect them, and of course communication challenges as well. It's very difficult to model communication challenges in a simulation, um, and so. There's definitely an importance uh, to slowly moving from from simulation to experimentation, especially if you're thinking about running robots uh, in the same space as humans. Uh, for example, if you want to do some kind of human-robot interaction, you might be able to use our um, our mixed reality simulator to run actually two separate physical worlds where you have the aerial robots in one physical space and the person in a separate physical space, but have them interact in real time using like virtual reality goggles on the person so that you have the physical robots and you have the physical person, but you're never putting anyone in danger until you're kind of ready to put them into the same space. Wow. And also this mixed reality concept helps the simulation in the sense, I think, that sensors change over time or they even though it says a certain specification in reality it's limited so you can also take in those variables for example if you tell the the simulated quadcopter move at x velocity and then you try it with the real one in the room where you're testing and it it's actually moving slower you can take in 
variables from the environment that way, right? Exactly, exactly. And you can improve even your, your simulated model using that data. That's, that's really cool. I hadn't heard about this. Let's talk about scaling and how it affects. Does adding more robots affect the robot coordination? Um, it really kind of depends on a, a lot of different factors. So if you're doing it all indoors in a small enclosed space, then um, then it certainly does. Uh, of course, because of the downdraft that we already talked about, uh, because of communication challenges, um, you know, you only have a certain amount of bandwidth. And so um, if you have some information that's coming, you know, off board to the robots, uh, then you're definitely going to be challenged with communication. And of course, even if the robots are only communicating with each other, uh, the more they communicate, kind of the, the worse the communication actually gets because it, they all end up interfering with each other. Um, and so there's definitely a lot of challenges in, in scaling up and, um, and, and they don't stop at just kind of developing controllers for that, uh, for that scaled up problem. There are also certainly lots of implementation issues. What can happen, for example, when a robot fails to complete its part of the task or it's disconnected or it malfunctions? So it depends on how you've designed your controller. Um, hopefully it's robust enough to kind of deal with that and get some kind of alert possibly to one of the other robots that, um, you know, that, that this task might, might not have been completed so that they can actually go and do it or figure out what's the best way of accomplishing it. Um, that's, you know, it's the benefit of having a multi-robot system where, you know, one of them fails, another one can pick up the slack. Um, and so you need some kind of notification um, or perhaps you need a robot that will go and discover that, um, that that robot has actually failed. Maybe it hasn't checked in in a long time. Um, there's lots of different ways that, that you could actually do that. Last question. In an article by MIT Technology Review, you mentioned that you call robots people and that this helps with your work. How does this help? So it doesn't necessarily help with my work, but okay. um, but it's something that, uh, you know, when I talk about robots, I talk about them a lot like they're people. Uh, we deal with robots every day in my lab. Um, and, you know, we do end up personifying them. Um, their successes are our successes. And, um, and their failures are our failures. <laughs> so, uh, so they certainly feel like students in my lab to me sometimes. <laughs> um, but when, when, we, when I describe what they're doing, I often, you know, say this person does this and that person does that. And then I catch myself and realize that I'm really not talking about people. I'm talking about robots. Um, but they're just, they're that personal to me, I guess. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Well, Nora, thank you for coming on the show. It was great talking to you. Thank you so much. It was great talking to you as well. Those were amazing questions. Thank you. <laughs>